Are you looking for a word from God today? If so, First Baptist Dallas is glad to present this dynamic message by Dr. Robert Jeffers. Dr. Jeffers is a premier Bible teacher, pastor, and author whose practical applications of God's truth help guide and encourage those who seek to know and follow the Lord Jesus. I know you'll be blessed. And now, the message by Dr. Robert Jeffers. Somebody has said that one of the greater jokes God has played on us was giving us the power to remember our past, but leaving us no power to change it. Now, I'm not sure that's completely true. As we've seen in our series, Say Goodbye to Regrets, it is true, we can't erase the past. But we can make decisions right now that reverse the consequences of past mistakes and more importantly, reshape our tomorrow and our eternity. Now, in our series, Say Goodbye to Regrets, up to this point, we've dealt with what I call self-inflicted regrets. Regrets that are the result of what we've done or haven't done. We've talked about regrets about our marriages or regrets in parenting. We'll talk about how to say goodbye to work regrets and money regrets and other things. But today, we're going to deal with a certain category of regrets. Regrets over offenses other people have committed against us. It's one thing to make changes and say goodbye to regrets we're responsible for, but how do you deal with those hurts in your life that are not a result of what you've done, but what others have done to you? For example, it's one thing to say you're going to rekindle your desire for your mate, but what do you do about a mate who has lost their desire for you and wants to end the marriage? You may be able to get back on track in your work life by reapplying yourself, but what do you do when your employer unfairly dismisses you? It's one thing to say, I'm going to start spending more time with my kids, but what do you do about a drunk driver who extinguishes the life of your child? Again, we've talked so far about self-inflicted regrets, but how do you handle regrets caused by others? The theme of today's sermon is very simple. Those who refuse to regret the hurts of others become prisoners of regret. Now, in the years I've been your pastor, I've had the privilege to be your pastor, I have preached a lot of messages on the subject of forgiveness. I've written a book on the subject of forgiveness, and people sometimes wonder, Pastor, why do you talk so much about forgiveness? Are you struggling with some hurt in your past that you just can't let go of? And the answer to that is no. I mean, honestly, I have a lot of faults, plenty of faults. If you don't believe it, just ask Amy. She can list them for you. I have many things I struggle with. Unforgiveness isn't one of them. Now, I learned a long time ago that not forgiving people is like drinking rat poison and waiting for the rat to die. It doesn't work that way. You only hurt yourself. So, I'm not preaching out of any personal struggle, but here's what I've seen over 40 years after 40 years in ministry. Forgiveness is the number one struggle that most people have in their spiritual life. Either receiving God's forgiveness 
or extending that forgiveness to other people. And that's why I preach about it so often. Today, we're going to talk about forgiveness versus revenge when it comes to the regrets caused by others in your life. For example, C.S. Lewis once said, forgiveness is a beautiful word until we have somebody to forgive. I mean, we extol the virtues of forgiveness in general, but when it comes to specifically forgiving, we have a hard time with it, don't we? I mean, for example, how does forgiveness apply to a woman whose husband continually physically abuses her in the presence of their children? How does it apply to a retiree who loses his retirement savings because of the fraud of a fellow Christian? How does forgiveness apply to a pastor who's unfairly dismissed from his church because of a jealous associate? How does forgiveness apply to a father whose teenage child is killed in a brutal gang attack. By the way, all four of those instances are not theoretical. They are actual instances, incidents that I've dealt with in counseling with other people. We're not talking about <clears throat> hypothetical forgiveness. We're talking about real forgiveness. Well, God tells us that there's a better way to revenge than revenge. We know that forgiveness is the preferred option. We know that turning the other cheek is preferable to breaking your opponent's nose. We know that intellectually, but we have a hard time actually applying it when it comes to us. Why is that? Some people would say one reason people have a hard time forgiving is they're not Christians. They can't give away what they haven't received. And the Bible gives some legitimacy to that explanation. It's really impossible, honestly, to forgive somebody until you experience God's forgiveness in your life. As children, we learn the verse Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. We've seen the relationship between receiving God's forgiveness and forgiving others in a parable we've looked at before in Matthew 18, remember the story of the slave who owed the king 10,000 talents? A talent was 70 pounds of gold. So do the math with 10,000 talents, how much gold that is. Calculated in today's term, that would be $16 billion. The slave owed the king $16 billion. And one day the king said, I want my money back. He had every right to have it back. It was a debt that he was owed, but obviously the slave had no way to repay a $16 billion debt. So what did he do? He fell down before the king and begged for mercy. The king felt compassion for him and forgave him, literally released him of that debt. That's what the word forgive means, to release somebody of a debt. Now here's a slave who's been forgiven $16 billion. He goes out and finds a fellow slave who owed him 100 denarii. A denarius was 16 cents. A hundred denarii would be $16. He owed him a measly $16, but he didn't have it to repay the first slave. And so he begged for mercy. Please have mercy on me and I'll repay you everything. But unlike the grace the first slave had been extended, he was unwilling to extend that grace to the fellow slave. He said, no, I'm not going to forgive the debt and I'm gonna have you thrown into prison until you repay everything. Remember when the king heard what had happened? He called that first slave in, and he said, how is it that you who have been forgiven so much 
would refuse to forgive so little, and he threw that first slave into prison until he repaid everything. And then remember how Jesus ended the story in verse 35 of Matthew 18, so shall my heavenly Father do the same to you, if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. There's a link between receiving forgiveness and extending forgiveness. Jesus isn't saying that you haven't been wrong, you haven't been hurt, you deserve to be repaid for what's happening to you. He's not denying any of that, but he's saying this, keep your hurt in perspective. Remember the difference between how much somebody has wronged you and how much you have wronged God is the difference between $16 and $16 billion. Forgiveness is the obligation of those who have truly been forgiven. We read the passage just a moment ago in Matthew 6. Jesus said, if you forgive others, God will forgive you. If you do not forgive others, neither will the heavenly Father forgive you. Was Jesus saying you can lose your salvation? No. Was he saying you earn your salvation? No. But he is saying this. If you find it impossible to forgive that person who has wronged you, if the cry of your heart is, I will not forgive, I will not forgive, I will not forgive, it's not that you've lost your salvation. It's probably you never had it to begin with. Because when you understand the real debt that God has forgiven you as a Christian, you can't help but want to extend that same forgiveness to others. One reason people don't forgive is they truly haven't been forgiven, but I've come to understand that's not the only reason. There's a second reason that people don't forgive, and is they really, and that is they don't really understand what forgiveness is. More than 25 years ago, I decided to write a book on forgiveness. It was such a prevalent problem. And amazingly, after 25 years, it's still in print when forgiveness doesn't make sense. Not because I'm a wonderful writer, but because it's a topic that everybody wrestles with. And uh, as I prepared to write this book, I partnered with the Barna Research Group, and we did a national survey on the subject of forgiveness among American Christians. And in our survey, we found that most Christians have an unbiblical understanding of forgiveness. They don't understand what it is. And there are four fallacies that keep many Christians as prisoners of regrets over the hurts of others. Let me mention those four myths about forgiveness, four fallacies about forgiveness that may truly be keeping you from forgiving that person in your life who needs to be forgiven. Fallacy number one, forgiveness must be earned. You just can't let that offender off the hook, we think. Why, that's not right. You can't let him go unpunished. It's not right for you. It's really not right for him. He has to earn forgiveness. But here's the problem. There are really two problems with that idea of thinking your offender can earn your forgiveness. First of all, earning forgiveness is really impossible when you think about it. Remember what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, you've heard it say an eye for an eye and a truth, tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, don't resist the one who does evil and so forth. You know, we think of that as a barbaric rule, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, but really 
It was a law, we call it lex talionis, the law of retribution, that was given to keep order in society. In other words, the punishment should not be any greater than a crime. It shouldn't be a life for an eye. It's an eye for an eye. It's not uh, a tooth for a tail, toenail. It's not a tooth for a toenail. It's a, it's a tooth for a tooth. In other words, you measure the punishment. But here's the problem. Gandhi pointed out the problem with an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth is that eventually everybody turns out blind and toothless. <laughs> There's got to be a better way. And in the end, when you've lost your tooth, you've still lost your tooth. You lose your eye, you've lost your eye. It's really impossible to earn forgiveness. For example, what could somebody pay back to you to make up for a child killed by a drunk driver? How could anybody repay you for a marriage that is torn apart by adultery? How do you repay uh, for a reputation that has been lost through slander? Once it's lost, it's lost. What do you do about that? It's impossible to earn forgiveness. Secondly, and this is key, earning forgiveness really binds you to your offender. It makes you a partner with your offender when you're waiting on them to do something before you free yourself from the prison of regrets. I remember reading about a man named Kevin Tennell in 1982. He was convicted of drunk driving that resulted in the death of an 18-year-old girl. The family wanted $1.5 million to be paid for restitution. They didn't get that. Instead, they got $936. But this is what the court ordered. They ordered that Kevin Tunnell would pay that debt one dollar at a time. Every week on Friday, the day of the girl's death, he was required to send the family a check for one dollar. And he had to do that for 936 weeks. The punishment was obvious. The court wanted Kevin to remember every week what he had done to extinguish the life of this girl. But here's the problem. He mailed the check, but the family was forced every week to open the mailbox and remember what had happened to their daughter. And after 936 weeks, after the payment was made, they still didn't have their daughter back. You see, when you require your offender to do something, you are making yourself a prisoner to them. Uh, you remember, maybe you've been to those old-fashioned picnics before, and remember the, for the games, they sometimes have the three-legged races, and you would have your leg bound to a partner, and you all would hobble down to the finish line together. You'd try to go as fast as you could, but you couldn't do it. And if you ever had a thought like I did, I would think, how can I get loose from this jerk so I can get further and faster. But you see, three-legged races don't allow for solo contenders. You have to have a partner. You can travel no farther or faster than he's able to. It's the same way when you require that your offender ask for forgiveness or earn your forgiveness, you are making yourself emotionally bound to that other person. You can travel no farther or faster in life than they're willing to go. But forgiveness is the process by which we separate ourselves from our offender. 
We say what you did was wrong. If we don't say it out loud, we say it in our hearts, you did wrong, you deserve to suffer for what you did, but I'm gonna let God deal with you. I'm gonna be free of you so I can get on with my life. That's what forgiveness does. Earning forgiveness binds you to your offender. There's a second mistake that many people have about their thinking of forgiveness. They think that forgiveness is a one-time act. We think that we can forgive a person once for all and never have to deal with it again. But did you know that outside of becoming a Christian, there really are no one-time decisions about anything that's important in life? I mean, somebody decides they're going to quit smoking. But if you've ever had that experience, you know, you can make that decision. You may be successful in it, but that decision doesn't quench your desire for nicotine. It's something you battle with for weeks, for months, perhaps for the rest of your life. Or you can make a decision uh, in your marriage. When you are married to somebody, you make a vow that you shall be faithful to them and to them alone till death shall part you. And you're sincere about it. But at some point in your marriage, you'll be tempted to break that marriage vow, and you have to remake that commitment. All of us who are Christians drift in our relationship with God, and one day we decide to rededicate our lives to Christ. That's important. Those decisions are important. But we know it's not a once-for-all decision. The tendency is to drift again. And so it is with forgiveness. There's no one-time act of forgiveness. It's something you will struggle with with that same person for that same offense many times later. That doesn't mean you haven't forgiven them. It just means you have to keep on forgiving them. Do you remember the late Corey Ten Boom who wrote the book, The Hiding Place? She writes about having difficulty continuing to remember what a Nazi soldier had done to her in the concentration camp at Ravensbrück, how he had mistreated Corey and her sister, Betsy. And for several weeks, she struggled because she couldn't forget this, and she was afraid that it mean, meant she had not forgiven the soldier. She writes, God's help came to me in the form of a kindly Lutheran pastor to whom I confessed my failure after two sleepless weeks. He said, up in that church tower, and he pointed to the church tower, is a bell which is rung by a sexton pulling on the rope. The bell keeps on ringing even after the sexton has let go of the rope. First ding, then dong, slower and slower until there's a final dong and it finally stops. I believe the same things are true of forgiveness. When we forgive, we take our hand off the rope. But if we've been tugging at our grievances for a long time, we shouldn't be surprised if the old angry thoughts keep coming for a while. They're just the ding-dongs of the old bell slowing down. And so Corey said it proved to be true. There were a few more midnight reverberations a couple of dings when the subject came up in my conversations, but they came less and less often, and at last they stopped altogether. And so I discovered another secret of forgiveness. We can trust God not only above our emotions, but also above our thoughts. Isn't that great? Maybe those ding-dongs will stop in your life. Maybe they will never stop, but don't miss the point. 
Forgiveness is a continual decision. That's why when Peter said, Lord, how many times shall we forgive? Seven times? Jesus answered, said, no, 70 times seven. Forgiveness is not a one-time act. A third mistake people make in their thinking about forgiveness is that forgiveness is synonymous with forgive, forgetting. It is synonymous with forgetting. We talk about forgive and forget as if they're the same thing. People think if I haven't forgotten, then I haven't forgiven. But the two are not the same. Remember this, forgive, forgetting is a biological function. The reason we forget more and more things, where we put the keys and so forth, is our brain grows older and older and things don't fire on all the cylinders like they ought to. Forgetting is a biological function. Forgiveness is a spiritual function. Now, some people would say, well, doesn't God forget our sins? They point to verses like Psalm 103 too, for he has removed our transgressions from us as far as the east is from the west. Or Micah 7, 19, he cast our sins into the depths of the sea. Or Jeremiah 31, 34, I will forgive them of their iniquity and remember their sin no more. Doesn't God forget our sins? No. God does not suddenly develop a case of heavenly Alzheimer's and us. Uh, forget about our transgressions. That is the Bible's way of saying God no longer holds our transgressions against us. That's what it means to forget our iniquity. It means he no longer holds our sin to our account because he's placed them on Christ's account. Christ has paid for our sins. But we shouldn't think that we've got the ability to forget we can't forget. And sometimes when we equate forgiveness with forgetting, we think if we can just dismiss something, play like it never happened, that's the same as forgiving. It's not. In fact, trying to prematurely dismiss or forgive or, or forget those things done to us can actually short circuit and shortcut the forgiveness process. Let me illustrate what I mean for you by that how just dismissing something can actually be a hindrance in truly forgiving another person. Two years after Amy and I were married, in 1979, we decided to buy our first house out in Garland, Texas. Do you remember what interest rates were like in 1979? The interest rates were 13% on a mortgage, and they would head to eventually 18% in 1981, but they were 13%. And so our real estate agent said, you know, if you've got a family member or somebody who cares about you, maybe you could get a second mortgage at a lower rate. And so I asked my grandfather if he would give us a second mortgage. And he said, yes, and I'll make you a bargain deal, 9% interest. And that was a great thing back when interest rates were 13, 9%. So we signed a note with him and we started making our payments every month and we made those payments for eight years. And one day he said, Robert, you don't need to send me any more money. I'll just forgive the note. Well, he died a few years later and Amy and I decided to sell the house. One big problem, we found out there was not a clear title to the house. We couldn't convey it to the buyer, why? Because even though my grandfather had great intentions, he had in his mind forgiven the note, he didn't go through the proper procedure to have a clear title on our property. 
And that's why I say just simply dismissing something may cause you to short circuit the actual steps you need to go through in forgiving another person. Forgiveness is a process. What kind of steps are you talking about? Well, first of all, I put it on your outline, you have to admit that you've been wronged. If you're gonna forgive somebody, you first of all have to acknowledge that they have wronged you. Secondly, you have to acknowledge that your offender owes you for his transgression. You need to calculate what it is that somebody owes you. I tell people who are trying to forgive, don't only admit that you've been wronged, calculate the cost. Maybe that other person deserves a divorce. Maybe they deserve imprisonment. Maybe they even deserve the death penalty. But you can't forgive a debt until you calculate what that debt is. And then thirdly, forgiveness is the decision to release your offender of his debt to you. If you don't go through this process, then you'll never reap the benefits of truly forgiving another person. We'll see a great biblical illustration of that in just a moment. A fourth fallacy people have about forgiveness is the belief that forgiveness requires reunion. In other words, if a wife is being physically abused by her husband, but she is required to forgive him, that means she has to go back and live under the same roof as he does and subject herself to that same punishment. If you forgive a cheating mate, that means you have to just overlook any future infidelities in your relationship. If you decide to hire back an employee who has embezzled money from you, uh, if you forgive them, that means you have to keep them employed, even if they show no restitution whatsoever. None of those things is true. You can forgive somebody without being reunited with them. In fact, one reason some of you right now are having a hard time forgiving somebody is because you're confusing forgiveness with reunion. You think you're going to be forced to go back in a relationship with them. There's a difference between forgiveness and reunion. This is worth the price of the sermon. Write these things down. Lewis Meads, who's written so much on forgiveness, says, it takes one person to forgive, it takes two to be reunited. We can forgive a person who never says he's sorry, but we can't be reunited with somebody until they say, I'm sorry. Forgiveness depends upon me, me and me alone. For reunion depends upon us. Forgiveness has no strings attached to it. Reunion has a number of strings attached to it. You see the difference? You can forgive, you can let go, you can let God deal with that person who has wronged you. You can do that regardless if the other person repents or not, but you can never reunite with somebody who's not willing to say, I'm sorry, and make steps to change the nature of that relationship. You know, a great biblical illustration of that is the prodigal son. Remember the younger son came to his dad, wanted his share of the estate so he could get out of the house. That crushed the father, but he gave him his share of the estate. He let him go. The father immediately forgave his son. You know how I know that? Because Jesus pictures the father standing on the front steps every day, 
scanning the horizon, looking for some sign of his son coming back home. He forgave his son. He wanted to be reunited with his son. There was forgiveness, but there could be no reunion until the son made the decision to come home. And so it is with us and our relationships with other people. I believe these four fallacies about forgiveness keep many people from forgiving. You know who illustrates probably better than anyone in the Old Testament those principles of forgiveness? It's that character, Joseph. Now, we have did a long study on Joseph. I'm not going to rehash the story. Just remember the basics. He was one of the 12 sons of Jacob. He was the favorite son. Because of that, his brothers were jealous. They threw him into a pit to have him sold as a slave. They left him for being dead. But God used that great betrayal to put Joseph exactly where God wanted him to be, in Egypt, as Pharaoh's right-hand man. And because of Joseph's prominence, he was able to devise that plan to save not just Egypt, but the entire world from the famine by setting aside part of the grain for the time of famine. And it was a famine that would cause Joseph's brothers, who had forgotten about him, to have to come to Egypt to buy the grain. Little did they know they would be making their appeal to the very brother whom they thought they had killed. And we've got this remarkable scene in Genesis 50. The brothers are there. Joseph reveals himself to his brothers. They're scared to death. Joseph said to them, do not be afraid, for am I not in God's place? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. So therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. Notice the three steps of genuine forgiveness that Joseph illustrates. First of all, genuine forgiveness admits you have been wronged. Joseph didn't say to his brothers, oh, brothers, let's just forget what happened to you and what you did to me. You must have just been having a bad day. We'll forgive and forget. No, he was very honest with them. He said, you meant it for evil. What you did was wrong. Remember this, you cannot forgive people you're not willing to blame. You have to blame people before you can forgive them. You don't have to sugarcoat anything. Joseph's brother said, you meant it for evil. Genuine forgiveness admits you have been wronged. Secondly, genuine forgiveness acknowledges a debt is owed. When Joseph said, do not be afraid, he was basically saying, you have every right to be afraid. I'm the big cheese now here in Egypt. I could have you executed if I wanted to. You have every right to be afraid. Genuine forgiveness acknowledges a debt is owed. Again, you have to calculate what that other person deserves before you release them of those consequences. And thirdly, genuine forgiveness releases your offender of their debt. It releases them of your debt. When Joseph said, you don't need to be afraid, I'm not going to kill you, but instead, I'm going to give you what you don't deserve, the choicest land of Egypt, the land of Goshen. He was demonstrated that he had released them of their debt. Now, when you forgive somebody, you release them of your right to hurt them for hurting you. It doesn't mean you give up your desire for justice. God, the government, somebody else may want to deal with them, but you're surrendering your right to seek vengeance against them. You know, this is such a remarkable story. 
I've often wondered, how did Joseph conjure up that forgiveness? He had never read when forgiveness doesn't make sense. How did he know how to do that? Where, where did that come from? I think part of it's telling in what Joseph said in his first conversation with his brothers in Genesis 45. He said, do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here for God sent me before you to preserve life. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant in the earth and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. Now for it was not you who sent me here, but God. Hear that over and over again. You did this, but God, but God, but God. It was not you who sent me here, but God, and he has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all of his household and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Joseph was able to see the hand of God in these offenses. Joseph believed in a God who was bigger than the ones who had hurt him. And ladies and gentlemen, you will never be able to forgive, truly forgive, until you come to the conclusion that God is bigger than your offender. God can take the worst things that have happened to you and use them for his good and his glory. That's the key to forgiveness. I think part of that was Joseph was able to see how God was able to work through those injustices. Little did he know how that would ultimately play out. I mean, we're still feeling the reverberations of his decision to forgive. I mean, think about it. If he hadn't forgiven his brothers and said, no, you can't have any grain, <laughs> what would have happened? The brothers would have starved to death. If the brothers had starved to death, they were the nucleus of the nation of Israel. If there had been no grain, there would have been no brothers. If there had been no brothers, there had been no Israel. If there were no Israel, there would be no Messiah. If there was no Messiah who had to come from Israel, there would have been no salvation. And you and I today would be dead in our trespasses and sins. We are saved today when you think about it because of one man's choice to forgive. I think that was his main motivation, but I think there's another secret to it. It's found in Genesis 45 2, when he first saw the brothers, the Bible said he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard of it as well. Joseph knew what it was like to be a prisoner. He had been unfairly in prison for the rape of Potiphar's wife. He knew the exhilaration that came from being freed finally from that prison. But he was still a prison of hurt, prisoner of hurt I think of bitterness as the years unfolded, as he thought about his brothers and what they had done to him. And tired of that bitterness, tired of those regrets, he made that decision to forgive. Are you ready to be freed from that prison of regrets? Are you tired of being shackled to that person who hurt you maybe many years ago? Forgiveness is the key that will set you free to live the life God has planned for you. Lewis Smead says it best when he says, when we forgive, we set the prisoner free. And the prisoner we set free is us. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. Nobody moving or leaving, please, for any reason. We're going to do things a little different today. 
If you do find it impossible to forgive, it may be you've never truly received God's forgiveness of your sins. Maybe you've never come to terms with how much of a debt you owe God for what you've done to disobey him. The good news is Christ is willing to forgive if we're willing to ask for that forgiveness. And today, if you would like to become a Christian, you can right now, in the quietness of this moment, ask the Lord Jesus to forgive you of your sins. But I want to say a word to those of you who are struggling with the issue of forgiveness. Maybe you're ready to be free. Let me encourage you to pray a prayer like this. If you're ready to be free from bitterness, from regret over what others have done to you, just pray this with me. Dear God, you know how much, and go ahead and use the person's name, hurt me. You know the effect it's had on my life. But Father, today I'm letting go of that hurt. I'm letting go of my desire for vengeance, not because this person deserves to be forgiven, not because they've asked to be forgiven. I'm forgiving because of the great forgiveness that you've given me through Christ Jesus. Today, I'm turning this person over to you. You deal with them however you want to. But help me now to be free and to live the life you've planned for me. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. On behalf of Dr. Robert Jeffress and everyone at First Baptist Dallas, thank you for joining us today. Our hope and prayer is that the biblical truth of this message will continue to be a blessing to you as you apply it to your life. For more information about First Baptist Dallas, we invite you to visit our website, firstdallas.org. May God bless you richly today.